Ah, my 20s. That one decade of exploration, searching for meaning, trying to find love, trying to nail down that career that would give me lots of money for the rest of my life. Yes, I do not miss one single second of that. <laughs> hey guys, welcome back to The Writer's Lens. Uh, maybe I'm a little nostalgic about my 20s. I mean, they were only about four years ago at this point, so perhaps I'm, I'm still fawning a bit uh, of yesteryear. But either way, that is one of the topics of my next conversation with new author Austin Gone, who has written a book called A Restless Age, How St. Augustine, not Augustine, as you'll find out in our interview, helps you make sense of your 20s. Austin is a youth pastor from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, but without any further ado, I don't want to give too much away about him because he has a very interesting uh, story to tell aside from just his book itself. So let's just dive right into the interview and talk about our 20s and, well, talk about the writing process too in there. So enjoy. All right, welcome back to The Writer's Lens. This is Josh J.C. Felto, and uh, today I am joined with another special guest here on The Writer's Lens. He is a pastor at Bellevue Christian Church in Pittsburgh, PA. He's a, also a student finishing up his Master of Divinity at Trinity School for Ministry. He's been married for seven years. He's the father of a budding young boy named Levi, a great, very good name. And he's the author of A Restless Age, How St. Augustine Helps You Make Sense of Your 20s. He is Austin Gone. How are you, sir? I'm good, but we have to decide from the beginning if we're going to go with Augustine or Augustine. So <laughs> we got to make a decision early. There seems to be right. a, there's some contention about which one of them you need to say in certain circles. Okay, but, so well, I'll let you decide then. Do you want to do Augustine I, or do you want to do Augustine? To say, Augustine? I tend to say Augustine, but Augustine comes off the off the tongue a little easier sometimes. The natural, if you're just seeing it for the first time, you say. Augustine. Yeah. And then you hear somebody say Augustine, you're like, maybe I should say Augustine. So it doesn't really matter. We'll say we'll figure I will, it out. I will, I will do my best throughout this, Austin, to to basically go with what you want to do. So we'll 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 go with Augustine as best I can. Well, I was gonna go I was gonna go with whatever you said and just gonna say that the rest of the time. So I didn't shame you or <laughs> right. so this is this will be great. This will be good. So so Austin and I got connected uh, via actually a very close connection of mine, uh, my brother. Uh, Jonathan Felto, who um, is that? What J stands for? And JJ? Yeah, <laughs> I don't yeah, know. yeah, yeah, jo yeah. They, they obviously know each other very well. They know. <laughs> they know. <laughs> I don't there's, even know what the J stands for. There, there's a there's a close kinship that I can feel with Austin and my yeah. and my bro. Kindred <laughs> spirits, as Anne would say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, my my brother uh, told me about uh, Austin and said, "Hey, this guy's writing a book." And he seems pretty baller. You might want to talk to him a little bit about his writing process. The book's coming out soon, which we'll get to in this interview. But, uh, but yeah, that's how I have been connected uh, with this fellow writer and scribe. And this is your first book, right, Austin? This is book one. Book one. And, yeah, this is, this is it. I have not written any books before this so or good. attempted any. So that's good, man. You're like the you're like the publishing virgin right now. So this is great. That's it. This is this is good. I'm gonna um, put that as my Twitter bio. <laughs> I think from here on out. Yes, absolutely. Do that, and then you can you can take it down after the first one's out. Great. So you, good. You, you can do that. So yeah, shameful. So, yeah. So so clearly, Austin's a writer, and I've actually been reading a little bit of Restless Age. So I appreciate you giving me kind of an advanced copy. Uh, you know, it's it's not signed yet though, since we've been having to read it through uh, through uh, PDF and Google and all that kind of good stuff. But 
but I like that will, it. Sir. That will literally decrease the value yeah. of the book if right. I sign it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't sign it. You can't sign it. So yeah, you're you know, right, I'll, right. I'll have to get the physical copy at some point. Good. Um, but I, I, I guess I want to I want to quit talking about that and just kind of get into you here and your story and uh, you know what is it that you know kind of inspired Mr. Gone here to write a book? But I guess I mean, what's your story in general? Mm-hmm. So I mean, we know that you're a pastor. Uh, and this this book being about uh, Saint Augustine, uh, <laughs> rolling with I'm, I told you I'll do my best to, to roll. Hey, with it that. doesn't matter. We'll just we'll, <laughs> it's interchangeable. It doesn't really matter. Uh, so, so we want to yeah. So we'll try to get to where I am. How I started writing mm-hmm. is that how that works? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I will give you a, a short version of my story, but mm-hmm. I I went to. I grew up in a lot of places. Most recently in high school was Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is where I met JJ. Mm-hmm. And I left for college to a small cornfield Bible college in Illinois called Lincoln Christian University. I'm not sure why I went there. I think I was running away from some, some things. And, mm-hmm. But I, went, I ended up there because somebody in my life, a youth minister, I think, had mentioned it, mentioned it once, and it seemed good enough. So... I applied real late and showed up for the first day of classes and mm-hmm. registered then and went there and I had I, I got an intercultural studies degree. I really had plans to never come back to Pittsburgh it was kind of like my ticket away was intercultural studies degree. Huh. And so I took my intercultural studies degree. I did an internship in Japan with a, a church planning network called Mustard Seed. Um, I think it's, it's either Mustard Seed Network, but they plant churches in Japan. I interned with them one summer. I met some pastors working um, at a church plant in a city called Nagoya. And when I was when I was just with them and spending a lot of time, and I had a lot of alone time there as well, just kind of just exploring the city on my own, thinking and thinking. Is that because you couldn't speak the language, or is it? Yeah, because, yeah. there was definitely a language barrier that I. <laughs> I mean, there's a surprising amount of Japanese people who speak English, but my Japanese was was not anything worthwhile. So, but being around those pastors really kind of like gave me a vision for being a pastor, and and so I actually I left that internship with full intention to go back to Japan, but through a just kind of a set of events that that unfolded over the next six months, I I ended up moving back to my hometown of Bellevue, which is a neighborhood right outside of Pittsburgh. And just really wanted to do something about young adults. That's, so that's where it all started for me was I saw our church had grown um, mm-hmm. since I'd left, but we were missing a lot of young adults, it felt like. And so I didn't really know what to do about that, but I'd grown up in church. My dad's a pastor, and my dad's the pastor of the church where I work now. And so I moved back and started working part-time there. For mm-hmm. I, I remember I wrote up a little tiny budget of like, here's what I think me and my wife can, my wife Julie, and what we could live off of if you pay me this much. It was not actually a livable wage, but that was what I asked them to pay me. And so we both got jobs. It wasn't their fault, but I, so we both got jobs at, uh, at, at coffee shops and bookstores. And so we were working part-time jobs and working as a young adults pastor for, for those next, basically since then now bringing that me up, up till now. But about four years ago, I started doing, I, I was, I was thinking about what I wanted to do with my life and what I wanted to keep doing and an opportunity to attend a seminary pretty close to me called Trinity School for Ministry. It's an amazing se- seminary. It's mm-hmm. an Anglican seminary. I'm not Anglican, but they, they just welcomed me and, and it's, we, we share a lot of thinking on things. And mm-hmm. so I went there and they provided some really good scholarships. They have some amazing donors who make the school flourish and make it easy for students to go there because 
you know, if you get 90 credits in a master's degree, it, it can load up you with a lot of debt, but they really try to make, um, try to make a way for students. So I started going there and I had some professors. One of them is Wes Hill. He's also an author. He's written a lot of books in Christian circles and, and he, he started commenting on my writing and my papers. I never seen myself as a writer. I've been primarily a preacher and a speaker up until that point. I'd written, I've always kept a journal. I've always, and here and there, I've always, I've, I write when I started my young adults ministry for the next, for the first year and a half, I was writing blog posts, like multiple a week for that. Huh. And, and then I'd written, I'd written like an article or two for the first time before college, but I never saw myself as a writer. That wasn't like in my, my way of seeing myself mm-hmm. until I went to college. And then, uh, two particular professors started to comment on my writing, like, Hey, you should really write more. You should try writing book reviews, you know, just little things that can help get your writing out there. And so mm-hmm. they just didn't, they didn't just comment on the style or on the content. They content, they commented on the style of my papers. Hmm. And I think when I, when they started to comment on it, I started to see some consistent patterns throughout my life where I saw other professors had commented on my papers in high or in college and even in high school. And so there's just started to make some connections. Like maybe I could write and maybe I've been seeing myself as a speaker primarily, but maybe I do care a lot about words and I wonder what it would like to start to write some of them down. Cause so writing, it was really out of, well, writing will help you speak better, right? I and mean, we'll speak well. <laughs> we'll help yeah. And I think it's, it's kind of weird where the more writing you do, the more, even as you speak is influenced by your writing. And then if you're in a season where you're doing a lot of speaking, it feels like your writing reflects more of your speaking. And then I think they just, I don't know. They do weird things to each other. If you're writing and speaking, they're not the same kinds of things, but they shape each other. Yep. And so I try to write like I speak, but even the way that I, I write now has changed how I speak in some ways. Hmm. And so it's, it's in, I don't know. I, so right now I feel like I'm more of a writer than a speaker, but I feel like I, you know, I can switch back any day and feel like for the next couple of years, feel like I'm more of a speaker than a writer. Yeah. And so I think I go back and forth between those two things. So out of all of that, with my experience with young adults, I, about a year, or I guess about two years ago, I first, around January two years ago, I have a journal that's a five-year journal, and I just write a few lines a day, mm-hmm. and two years ago, I'd written, I think I'm going to try writing a tiny little book for young adults, and so maybe I'll just make it a downloadable PDF that young adults, if they come to our church, they can read it, and so I, I, I preached a couple of sermons toward them for my young adults ministry, five over five months, just five different sermons. And, and I was like, I'll just turn each of those sermons maybe into a chapter of a book and see if I could do that. And that's, that's really where the, where it got going. Um, hmm. originally was trying to do that. Um, yeah, that's cool, man. That's a quite a unique turn of, uh, of events as far as your story is concerned, because I think a lot of people go, yeah, I'm going to move far away and I'm not going to come back home. I'm never going to do that. Hmm. And uh, considering how you went across the Pacific, and you were over in Japan, <laughs> and that's kind of where, where you got your inspiration to come back and start pastoring, really. I yeah. think that's really interesting. Uh, I mean, I went I went from Pennsylvania to Ohio, and I'm still in Ohio, so I don't know if that's a... <laughs> Pretty much the same thing. Yeah, it's totally yeah. the same thing. There's a different accent here. I think I've gotten the Cleveland accent where I'm at. Um, yeah. But uh, but yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And as far as the people recognizing your talent as opposed to you thinking you had any. I mean, that was a big deal, obviously, having peers and other people looking over your shoulder and saying, hey, Austin, you actually have some, you got some good stuff here as far as your style is concerned, right? Yeah, and I think, I think I've think i had a hard time recognizing ability in myself. So, And I think that's taught me as well, too. If I see something in somebody else, whether it's a speaker or a writer, because those are the things I tend to spend most of my time doing, 
that I try to note it and because maybe they don't see it themselves. Maybe they sense it. Like I think I sense that I was better with words than some than a lot of other people. And so there's I think maybe I sensed it, but it took people affirming that for me to really want to have the courage to do anything. And same thing with speaking. I I did not I was I had a terrible public speaking first experience where it's just just plummeted and burned and just every joke flopped and it just couldn't have gone worse. <laughs> and from then on, I was like, okay, well, I think I'm not going to do that anymore. And then I had a, like a good public speaking experience, and then just people would affirm that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what helped, gave me courage and made me better, mm-hmm. and the courage to pursue those kinds of things. That's great, man. Now you've been talking about young adults and and whatnot. So just so that everyone who's listening knows, when you say young adults, like what age group are you specifically talking about? Yeah, I have a very specific way that I talk about young adulthood, and I use a phrase. I and it's the phrase "age and stage." Hmm. Young adulthood is is difficult to define because some people, when they think of young adulthood, they think primarily of an age, and that's one way of thinking about it. And I think it reflects young adulthood, where it's from your high school graduation party until like your you know your early thirties at the latest, mm-hmm. and it kinds of, it tends to fall in that age range. And there's there's science that backs that up, neuroscience that talks about how your brain is is in some major developmental phases in your mm-hmm. 20s. So there's something unique happening in young or emerging adulthood that isn't happening in another period in your life. So there's something biologically happening in that age. At the same time, though, so and there's a woman named Meg Jay who wrote a book called The Defining Decade a mm-hmm. couple of years ago. She has a short TED Talk. You can get the gist of that book from listening to the TED Talk. Mm-hmm. And she kind of introduced me to some of that sort of that side of things. And then, but I tend, but from my experience with young adults, I'm sure somebody's written about this somewhere, but I tend to see it as a stage. And there's, there's other authors who have talked about the stage of emerging adulthood and some of the things about it. But the way I personally understand it is, is a stage of open-ended searching where you're looking for closure Mm -hmm. on what I call five basic young adult searches, which are the search for answers, trying to figure out what do you believe, usually, you know, walking, I'll say the five things. So search for answers, habits, belonging, love, and work. And so answers, you're working through doubts and your childhood faith or childhood lack thereof. Habits, some of the habits that were innocent in your teens are starting to become hardwired in your 20s. And you're like, ah, I don't know if I want, I don't know if this is who I want to be. Mm. Uh, belonging, you're transitioning into college sometimes or just transitioning back into your, for me, transitioning back into my home neighborhood and not having the same friendships that were once there and just trying to figure out who am I or, and where do I belong and then search for love. Doesn't mean that you have to get married in your twenties, but you're you're trying to you're usually unsettled in your in your relational status, whether it's sing, wanting to be single, wanting to be married, and then finally work. That's kind of the main thing on most young adults' mind is where can I work and how can I get healthcare? Those are kind of our <laughs> main questions as 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 uh, young adults. And and so those five searches, the more open ended they feel, mm-hmm. the more likely you're kind of still in young adulthood, and the more closure you're starting to feel. Around those five searches, the more likely it is that you're beginning to no longer see yourself as a young adult and you're beginning to see yourself more as fitting in with a different hmm. uh, stage. So, it, but sometimes, so that's why you could have somebody who's 30 who still feels very open ended on those searches, mm-hmm. who still feels like a young adult. And you could have somebody who's 24 who feels pretty closed off on all those searches. They're kind of like, okay, I'm established and like my work. I'm, you know, I'm married or I'm like really confident in my singleness. Or, and so they're not they're they're kind of already leaving young adulthood in a sense. And so age and stage, that's how I tend to think about it. Oh, that's really good. And I know that this, now the book itself, uh, as St. Augustine, we're going to stick with St. Augustine here, uh, 
you say how he helps you make sense of your 20s. So you're basically kind of almost targeting the 20s, though, too, right? I mean, yeah, because how old are you again? 29? I'm 29, so 29. I'm right on the edge. So I'm, you are on the cusp, man. You are you're almost yeah. into the 30s. There's an author, I think Daniel Pink wrote a book on time recently, and he talks about how when you're turning a decade, you feel a sudden sense of urgency, and there's like mm. there's studies to prove this, and I think that's true for me. It's like, oh no, I'm turning 30. I've got to get stuff done before I turn 30, and then it's all going to slow down again until 39. I'm like, ah, I'm almost 40. Uh, yeah, I think 20s is a way of like kind of just encapsulating young adulthood, and so mm -hmm. it tends to f fall in that 20 to 29, but it includes, you know, 18, it includes 31, but... Mm -hmm. Yeah, how to make sense of your 20s. Do you think it's interesting, though, and, and this this might be going on the rabbit hole aside from writing, and we'll get back to it in a second, but I'm just curious. In your experience working with young adults in their 20s, do you feel like that stage lasts longer with this gen with this generation? Is it a little bit longer, maybe, or is there more searching going on? Is that, is, I mean, how is that, what's your there, experience? There are factors that, I think, there are, there are plenty of studies that will show you that that, I mean, even people will say um, young adult is a, is a new thing, you know, there was adolescence and there was adulthood and that this whole concept of young adulthood is a new thing. And yes and no, it's kind of new and it's kind of not. But I think one of the reasons that it tends to feel new is that historically, those five searches I was talking about, you tend to get closure, especially mm -hmm. work and love. Those ones, you can tend to get closure earlier in your 20s than now. And so, you know, with careers changing rapidly, with with people delaying marriage for a variety of different reasons, young adulthood tends to feel longer than ever. So it's a it's a bigger it's it's its own uh, it's, it's its own stage of development now in a way that it wasn't hasn't always been, and that's partly because we're delaying many of the indicators of entering into adulthood. So mm -hmm. things like economic stability. Uh, no longer dependent on parents, mm -hmm. and it's not all their fault. There's a lot of we just we live in an intriguing economy. A lot of it has to do with the generation before us, mm -hmm. but nonetheless, what's happened is young adulthood has slowly started to expand because of those what what different um, sociologists have termed the indicators of growing into adulthood. Have we're we're reaching those later? Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, that's lots no. of questions. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good summation, I think, Austin. That was a really good, uh, just kind of, I don't want to say it's the primer is the right word, but just kind of bringing it all together in a synthesis there about how, uh, you know, younger people in their 20s, I think it tends to, to look that direction that people kind of think, well, you know, they're 28, 29, but they're still young, right? They're still kind of figuring things out. Like there's more of that perception, I think, now. Yeah. And so I think that's also what's interesting about your book is that, you're really targeting young adulthood in the tw in in your twenties because there's a majority of people mm -hmm. that right now are doing that. They're going through that transition yeah. transitionary period right. in their twenties. So, mm -hmm. so that's really good. Do you think, uh, as far as you know, the book being called a restless age, uh, is that something that could apply even to you know the generation as a whole, or is it just primarily for people going through kind of young adulthood? I mean, is this it kind of, it might be a bit of an existential question, but I, I think it's a pretty good one. Well, I'll, no, I'll start, I mean, I'll start with this is that I've had a lot of, you know, I have about a hundred people and I have an amazing launch team of people who are helping read the book early and, mm -hmm. and, you know, getting the book into other people's hands. We can talk more about that a little later, but some of them are older who are on the launch team who are in their forties or fifties or sixties even, mm -hmm. and even seventies. And they've read the people, some of the people who have read that, like one of my friends read it and she she just talked to me about it. She's she's um, not in her twenties anymore. But she said, "Man, this 
there is plenty in this book hmm. that made sense to me now in this point of my life. And I think that's because our 20s, um, let me explain what I mean by the word restless. I take that from Augustine where he, there's a famous quote, a lot of people have heard him, Christian or non-Christian, this quote of our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Yeah. And it's one of the, it's in the opening page of Augustine's confessions. And it's his way of saying that um, our souls, our, our, ourselves look for fulfillment or peace or stability in yeah. lots of different things. And my my way of saying that is we look for peace and stability in like, if I could just get those five searches, if I could just find work, if I could just get love, if I could just find belonging, I'd feel at rest. But Augustine says, look, none of those things are going to do it for you. Mm -hmm. You have to come to God, order your life around him. And only from that place are you then in a place to search for love and work and all those things. Not as, not as the ultimate meaning in your life, but as things that, that flow from having already found everything you need in God. Mm -hmm. Now that said, you're going to, you're going to feel that very amplified in your twenties, that there's a sense in which you you feel that restlessness Augustine talks about where you're searching for things to give you stability and peace and fulfillment in a pretty magnified way in your 20s. Mm -hmm. But you're going to experience that in other ways throughout your whole life. It doesn't mean you don't experience it in your teens, and it doesn't mean you won't experience it in your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Mm. And so I think any age could really be a restless age, but I think your 20s are a particularly magnified version of mm -hmm. restlessness. And it's also the only decade that I feel qualified to write to. So <laughs> considering, <laughs> so well, you haven't quite got that. to the 30s yet. So yeah. You're... And the fact that, yeah, and Augustine's confessions, most of it, most of it takes place. So it's him writing about his spiritual journey from the inside, trying to explain it. Yeah. And, and most of it takes place between his mid to late teens and before his 32nd birthday, which is around when he was converted. Mm -hmm. And so most of it takes place in his 20s, which is just really works for mm -hmm. the audience that I'm working for. That's really good. How how much time went into researching Augustine, you know, just, I mean, reading the book, obviously, Confessions, but also just maybe researching him and kind of getting a little bit into his head to kind of have an idea, uh, you know, how you were going to pen the book and, and whatnot. I mean, what was that process like for you as far as putting this book together? Well, I would admit I put some major constraints on myself. So there, Augustine has written, you know, this perspective is going to be nothing, but he's like written more than this many books. So more, he's written lots of pages on things, you know, right. it's shelves worth of, if, of Augustine. If you go to a theological library in your local city, you will find works upon works upon works by Augustine. And I don't have time for that. So I read, when it came to Augustine, I've read other things by him, but for mm -hmm. this book, I just read Augustine's Confessions mm -hmm. multiple times through um, and just read it very patiently. Um, I've read reread sections, made sure I really understood that. I read a commentary that went along with it by a guy named Peter Kreeft called, I, I can't think of what it's called, but Peter Kreeft wrote a commentary on the book and I, I used that. And that is, I discovered it really late, unfortunately, but I, it helped me right at the end just to make sure I was going in the right direction. And then I read one biography. So my primary source, if you want to think about primary and secondary, my primary source was Augustine's Confessions. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, I just, there were other people that were like, you should really read this sermon by Augustine. You should read this. And I'm like, can't, I'm just putting constraints on. Um, <laughs> I'm only going to read Augustine's Confessions. And then I read one kind of uh, proven biography on him by a guy named Peter Brown um, mm -hmm. called Augustine of Hippo. And he's written kind of the definitive biography. There's been some recent ones in recent years, but that's kind of a classic work on him. And so I kind of stuck with Augustine's Confessions and Peter Brown's biography and try to read those closely, as closely as I could. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, 
I can over-research and I can research to no end. There's a guy. Uh, I get sure that you... vibe from you, Austin. I yeah. have the same problem. <laughs> yeah. There's a book called The War on the War of Art. Yeah, mm. It's like uh, by a guy named, I think it's by Stephen Pressfield. I'm going to mm-hmm. go with that. Yep. And in the book, he talks about how there's a tendency to think that research is work. And, and so you can just keep researching, keep researching, keep researching, but you got to pour, you got to stop at some point and just start the thing. And for me, I, I might put the constraints on, I said, I'm going to read Augustine's confessions. I'm going to read Peter Brown's biography. And then I'm going to write based on all the other research I've done about young adulthood. And I, mm-hmm. I read articles here and there, um, on different topics in the book just to kind of find some fresh information on stuff. But yeah. I have a pretty good log and Evernote of everything I've ever read. And so that I find worthwhile, I keep really good notes and I started there and then I would go track down the quote in a book if I had to, if it wasn't exact. And so, yeah, yeah. that's kind of, for me, I put major constraints and that's kind of, for me, I let my creativity flow from those constraints. That's great, man. That's actually a pretty wise decision considering this is the first book you're writing because I, you know, I just think people who are writing something, maybe first go around, the tendency is to think that. I have to research as much as I can because I have all this information available to me. I should get as much on my my fingertips as possible in order mm-hmm. to write the best thing that I can do. And really by constraining yourself, like you're saying, you can kind of zero in a little bit better because, yeah. because as much as we have, you know, we're letting things come in, we still have filters, right? We still have ways that yeah. we're seeing things and we're reading things and we're interpreting things. Mm-hmm. And we really don't know what exactly we're going to be filtering out either when we actually sit down and write it, you know, so putting a stoppage on the amount of time we spend researching something and then actually putting it on paper, mm-hmm. that does affect the way that our voice is generated, essentially, Yeah, you know, when you're writing, writing anything. Uh, yeah, and I do think you, I mean, you can over research, you can research something to death and yeah. you'll, and eventually everybody, a lot of people are saying, you're always going to find another angle, another thing. You just got to just decide. It's the same thing with preaching. You know, I'm again, I'm, a, I'm just speaking every every other Sunday and you can, you can read and read and read and read and read, but eventually you just got to decide we're going to go in this direction Mm -hmm. and put some constraints and say, or I'm only going to read this, this commentary. I'm only going to read this one thing. I'm going to go with it. I don't have time to read seven (laughs) of these. Now is, Oh, 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 sorry. Finish your thought. Go ahead. That's it. No, that was, that was oh. the end of my thought. Okay. Uh, yeah, because I actually was going to say, because I haven't read through all of A Restless Age, so I didn't want to yeah. give away spoilers or anything. But is that something also, I'm just curious, in the age of Google, being a 20-something and having everything at your fingertips and whatnot, uh, you know, is that a unique challenge too that you think, uh, you know, 20-somethings deal with as far as I have to research everything about how to find the right job and I, I have to, you know, in order to get my love life correct and how I'm mm-hmm. going to feel belong, you know, I'm going to belong somewhere or something like that. I mean, is, yeah. that, is that also a challenge you think? I would just point, I would point you to, there's a great, uh, not Ted talk. It's a Q talk, um, by a guy named Andy Crouch mm-hmm. and he's written a couple different books on culture and things like that. But he has a talk, his most recent Q talk. I can't remember what it's called. He talks about how for a long time, wisdom was something handed down from generation to generation. So for example, me and, my, me and my wife are raising a child right now. And back in the day, you didn't have a book. You just had to go to your parents. You had to go and the people your parents knew and you had to ask them, what do I do when I'm encountering this problem? Mm-hmm. Now you can ask your friends on Facebook, and this happens all the time, where you'll say, hey, my, my son is uh, has a temperature that's 90, 95 or what's the normal, t- like 97 or something. Yeah. And 
and he's you know sneezing every time he goes outside like what should i do and you get like a thousand answers and if you start typing that into google you get tons of different streams of thought and so it can become very overwhelming and so Mm -hmm. i think in general is for me my, my tendency tends to be find something that's good enough find one person or two people you can trust on a subject mm-hmm. and just make them your kind of go-to person to ask rather than asking Google and the whole the whole internet or tons of people. And so we live in a weird time where again Andy Crouch talks about how you just wisdom was passed down and all the all the inherited wisdom from forever was inside of your your mom or your dad on parenting and so you went to them but now you go to you read 20 books and things like that. And mm-hmm. so yeah, we do live in a different time. And so you got to kind of limit your sources and you got to decide, you know what, we're going to be we're gonna be good enough. That's great. That's, yeah. this is a, that's a deep dive into like psychology that I would love to get into, man. But, but we're going to stay focused on your book. That's about as deep as I can go. That's about so, as deep as you can go. <laughs> yeah. I point to Andy Crouch and uh, I don't have any advice for parents. I don't know. We don't know what we're doing. Well, like, that's I would, the thing. When you start to read all this stuff out there, you're like, how did anybody keep a baby alive ever for, for the entire history yeah. of the world without knowing everything we know? Well, you and know, you start they, to realize you'll be okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it was also like, you know, power by numbers back then too. I mean, you just, people were having kids as often as they could, sure. you know, it's that, yeah. I mean, you had to uh, increase your chances. Yeah. I mean, like, most families, it was like, stuff. you know, we got 12 mouths to feed, but we need all 12 because not all 12 of us might survive the winter. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, I, I, uh, this I, got, this got depressing in a hurry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. I, didn't, I wasn't aware, man, <laughs> yeah. it's quite the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. That, we talk about some depressing stuff on the writer's lens. I didn't know if I, if I should tell you that before you got on the show or just right when we got, we started talking about it. So I'm glad, I'm glad we hit that up Austin. So that was good. (laughs) So anyway, uh, so getting back again to just your writing process and everything else. I mean, I think this is really helpful for people, uh, who are writing or, or just starting off or whatever, or whatever project they're trying to undertake. What does the typical day look like? I mean, what did it look like for you in terms of the process of, I'm, okay, I started this thing, I'm outlining it, or maybe I don't outline, outline it, I just go straight into it. What does that look like and how much time would you give yourself per day, would you say, to yeah, kind of do I'll, that? I'll try to, I'll try to make sure I, I kind of stay on subject. I'll, I'll just go from when I, so I, I wrote a, like a real ugly, real ugly manuscript okay. and I submitted it to GCD books, Gospel Center Discipleship books, and to a, to the um, the person who's in charge at the time still is Jeremy Wrightball, and mm-hmm. I heard back a couple months later, which is this usually a delay in these things. And so I submitted it in like July. I heard back in like November, Ooh. so a year, year and a half ago, and they were like, "Yeah, we'd love to do this. This looks awesome." And at that point, actually, it had nothing to do with Augustine's Confessions. The book was very different, and I hadn't even. It was in between November and January when I restarted writing my manuscript hmm. that I read Augustine's Confessions again, and I said, "This is." This is the book. This is what I needed. This is the structuring hmm. piece of the whole book. And that was that's a whole different thing. But so January is when I started rewriting the manuscript. And my I did a couple of things is I, I knew the structure of the book. There's an introduction, there's the five searches, five chapters, there's a conclusion, and then I knew there's at least one or two appendices that I, I might add on to the end. And so here how the way that I work is I work basically between Evernote and Google Drive. And I wouldn't I would I would note this as well and I I learned this as a photographer. My wife and I have been both been photographers is that often you think you need to have all the right equipment before you can do something well. Mm-hmm. And 
And I, I now know that there are lots of writing tools out there to help people write, you know, yeah. Scrivener and a bunch of other things. But Emily I is another one. Yeah, yeah. I wrote this whole book using Evernote and Google Drive. So Google Docs and Evernote. That was it. And so Evernote is how I kept track of my research. I I formed a folder for each of the chapters of the book mm-hmm. and I just dropped in any relevant piece of research into that. And then when I got close to preparing to write that chapter, I started to kind of pull it together see if I could kind of think through what's the angle here, what's the outline of the chapter. Mm-hmm. And so I did that all in Evernote, just kind of keeping information. So if I, if I read an article on love and I knew I have a love chapter, I'm just going to put that over there for now and summarize the article and what I gained from it. And just I'll get back to it in a couple months when I start writing about it. So that way it's always kind of happening in the back of my mind. And if I ever have a thought like, or I'm having a conversation with a young adult and I say something about love and I'm like, oh, and I make a note. So that's the other thing. I always carry around a... Uh, this is a, a notebook by a company called Bull and Stash. I don't oh, know nice. if you can see that. And it's got paper that you can you can pull out in the middle. I don't want to show you because I don't know. There's something important on there. But um, <laughs> that whenever I have a thought, I write it down there and then I usually transfer it to Evernote later or and so I'm always if there's you're always researching, even if you're not you're not thinking or intentionally doing it. And so but you gotta always have a way to collect that information and just put it somewhere until you need it. And so that's what I would do with, with my notebook and with Evernote. And so by the time I actually started writing the chapter, I had a ton of research done. Mm-hmm. And I, maybe there was one thing I needed to research more. So when it actually came to writing then, I, it worked out that I basically wrote a chapter a month for five months. From My due date was May, I don't know, I think it was like May 28th or something. And then I, I started rewriting the manuscript on January 2nd. And mm-hmm. so I spent each month writing, trying to write a chapter and then along with that, I was trying to also write the introduction, the conclusion, and the appendices, which is kind of mm-hmm. in other time when I wanted to get away from the chapter and work on something else. Mm-hmm. So, and then I pulled it all together kind of at the end. And my, my basic writing schedule was on Monday, and everybody's got their own thing. So the way I learned to do a writing schedule, I read a book by, there's a guy named Austin Cleon who wrote. Oh, yeah, called, Austin Cleon. Yeah, yeah, he's the man. Um, he wrote, he just, he's has a new one coming out, I think, but he wrote a book called Steal Like an Artist and yep. one called Show Your Work. Um, I've read both of those. They're both great. He's just mm-hmm. really, he just has some really good, pithy, helpful things. And one of the things that, well, anyways, I think on Twitter or something, he suggested a book called The Clockwork Muse. Huh. And I think it's really made, it written more for people writing a dissertation or something like that. But it's basically how can you get on a schedule mm. to make sure you're producing and so that you can actually get the thing done on time. Um, deadlines are very important to me. I find I feel them like they're commitments. And so mm-hmm. I know that writers miss deadlines all the time, but it was very important for me to to hit the deadline. Mm-hmm. And even though I think it was like a made up deadline, I don't think it was a real deadline. I think we just put a number out there, but I felt committed to it because yeah. so we worked toward May 28th and Anyway, so my, my week then was structured. The way my creative juices flow is, is I tried to do, I, you know, I have other jobs. I have, I'm a pastor, and that's my, my normal job. I'm also a student, and then I'm a husband and a father. So, and I actually, when I was writing the book, my son was only three months old. So in that January when I started writing. So it was, a, it was mm. a not, I would not choose that time again to write a book. <laughs> but that's I got a three-year-old and, and so, a two-year-old, man. It's, yeah, it's tough. <laughs> mine's, mine's like almost 18 months. Wow. now and so i would write on monday mornings for 
basically I'd give myself from like eight to noon. Um, cause I also work on Sundays as part of being a pastor. So I just kind of gave myself Monday mornings from eight to 12 just to work on the book. And that would give me a good start in the week. Mm-hmm. And then I would spend usually two, sometimes three other mornings a week between five thirty and seven thirty AM trying to write. And what I found is that I can't wake up and immediately start writing. I need to take 30 to 45 minutes just to drink coffee for me to pray or read something else um, just to get my juices rolling because there was a while there I was like all right wake up and just type words and it was they were garbage words they weren't good words and so I needed I needed time and so that's basically how I how I got the book done it's just a couple hours on Monday to set me up for the week and then early mornings and our lunch break you know sometimes just trying to get a couple of words written there. And then the other really good thing that I did, I read a book called Finish by a guy named John Acuff. I was just going to mention him, man. Yeah. yeah. And he yeah. talks about, he talks about how to get goals done. And one thing that he talks about is having some kind of visible marker of progress. And so mm-hmm. I want to say that I think for each chapter I was shooting for between like, I, I want to say like six, I, I feel like 6,000 words. I can't remember exactly how long my chapters were, but mm. I put for every chapter, so beginning of the month, I put a, a bunch of post-its on my wall. So if I'm, I'm sitting at my computer right now, a bunch of post-its up behind it, mm. each representing 500 words. And then at the end, there was some kind of reward, which I don't know, like Chinese takeout. I don't remember what the reward was, but <laughs> for every 500 words, I took a post-it off the wall. So there were some mornings where I had written 450 words and I was like, boy, do I want to take a post-it off the wall. And so I'd, I'd write a couple more sentences to try to get to that that marker. And that was that's honestly how I wrote the book. I just kept pulling post-its off the wall. Huh. So I think if you go deep enough back into my Twitter, you'll see a picture of that huh. somewhere. That's um, really that cool. really helps me. I'm very visual, and I like to see progress. And so it's hard to see progress on a on a book that's... I don't know how many how many words it is thirty five thousand or something like that, but um, it's hard to see progress when you're when you're in the middle of chapter one. Oh yeah, well, that's re- that's really good. That's the one that's the give yourself the gift of done. Is that how that book? I think that's what that book. Yeah, was. yeah. Give yourself. Yeah, a cuff's really solid. Yeah, he's, uh, he's also really pithy. Lots of really good stuff. Yeah, yeah, and he's pretty. Uh, yeah, he's definitely very uh, what's witty. I guess is the best way to put it. I see. It on, I follow him on Twitter and everything, and he's always yeah. got some pretty good, some pretty good. Uh, I think he like recently did a comedy tour. So he's did been, he? I could yeah. see that. I could totally he's see that out of that guy. Um, well, that's good. I mean, I I definitely wanted you to mention that because you know I think to anyone who's an amateur writer, they think that hey, I got this idea, I'm going to do this over the weekend, you know, or yeah. I'm going, <laughs> or I'm going to do it maybe in the next couple weeks or. Uh, maybe the next month or whatever it is. And, and then it's almost like you start going on the rabbit hole and wait a second, this might take me a lot longer and I'm going to have to sit longer and do it. I mean, you were saying eight mm-hmm. to 12, usually some time that you would give yourself on like a Monday, you know, yeah. four hours or so. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's important. That's important to eliminate the, the distractions, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Your- and I think it's, I mean, I'm sure, you know, but it's, mm-hmm. this is not knowledge, but once you get it takes a minute to get rolling, but once you get rolling, you can stay there for a while. Yeah. And, and so like, man, okay, this is coming together. Like I've got words, they're coming out and they're not that bad, you know? And, and, but it takes a while to get there. You're like, uh, typing a sentence and then erasing it and then typing <laughs> it. It's like 45 minutes of that. And then all of a sudden mm-hmm. you're like, boom, going. Yeah. So. Yeah. Now you go. So now the, so the book's done and then editing, which is probably my least favorite thing in the entire world. Uh, how have you gone about just editing the book? I mean, having a team of people, did you outsource that? Did you do it yourself? You know, like what, what does that actually look like? 
Yeah, the great thing, uh, I recently tweeted that your team is everything when it comes to this kind of stuff. That mm-hmm. I think that's the biggest lesson I've learned in the whole writing process is that having a team is is huge versus doing something by yourself. And I think I don't think I realized, you know, when you when you see a book, you're like, wow, and you see the author's name on the front, like, mm-hmm. wow, they wrote this book. But the the book is really. I think maybe in a lot of cases, the acknowledgements, and I really try to name people by name in my acknowledgements that really may push the book along, you mm-hmm. know, a paragraph or a sentence and just helped me get to where I am. And so with editors, the way GCD books works is they have, they had kind of an editor assigned to me. Mm-hmm. His name's Grayson Pope. Amazing guy. He's got his own writing. He's got his own website and I encourage you to check him out. Um, he's a great writer himself. And, uh, but he walked me through the whole process. You know, I didn't know what to do with mm-hmm. submitting it to him, but actually let me go back a step. So even before I, so when I was writing that manuscript for those five months, every time, every month when I finished a chapter, I had two, the two best writers I know personally who had time to read that are kind of peers of mine. Um, one's a woman, one's a man and had them read and one read just mostly for like, uh, just my wording and sentences in general. And the other person read more for like the structure of my paragraphs and those kinds of things. They both brought different angles mm-hmm. to it. And so they would read it closely each mm-hmm. month after I read a chapter, I'd send it to them first and they would send it back to me and I'd make some edits. So even before I sent it off to the official editor, mm-hmm. it had already had two sets of really good eyes on it that um, then sent off to Grayson. And so then Grayson read through the whole thing, sent back to like, the good thing about what happened with me is I know some people, you know, they get it back from the editor and they're like, you got to change the whole structure of a book. And he was yeah. like, this is great. Uh, you don't need to change the structure. The main things like was like, you need to add something here. This paragraph's weak. Your conclusion stinks. But, and then, you know, you, and then my actual conclusion to the book was too short. And so he told me that, you know, the, the, the actual conclusion of the book was, was originally like a quarter of what it is now. And, mm-hmm. It was very different, and I'm I'm glad that he mentioned that. It made the book a lot better. It made it more conclusive, really. And and so, anyways, he so he gave that back to me. I made those initial rounds of edits, and then there was there's two other sort of copy editors who read through it themselves just for just to get more eyes on it. Like, what are we missing? You know, paying attention, and they all caught different things. And so then it came back to me. I approved all those edits, and then we started to move toward the final versions mm-hmm. um, of the book. And we got what we called our clean, not final version, which is when we started to send it out for people to endorse. Hmm. And even then though, I read through the whole thing again at that point, found more errors that we, we still had missed. And I, uh, and then even up till like last week that we were still uh, catching errors. And even one of my early readers is a great editor herself. Mm-hmm. And, and she she read through the whole thing um, and sent me a list of other errors that she caught. So, wow. um, we were able to incorporate those and make some final changes. Um, so there's you're just catching errors forever. You're just oh, you're yeah. always there. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I'm done. I'm and it's even on a book of like thirty five thousand words, right? You said the the book's about I mean, the- that seems that seems right. You could get there. It's like who knows? I could be way off, but that seems <laughs> about right. Yeah, and I just think you know. Some people write books that are like 230, 250,000 words, and you got to yeah. think what kind of a team they have to have around them just mm-hmm. to help with anything that's going on like that. So so that's also good. I mean, as far as having a team, having like the beta readers, I think that's kind of technically the term, you know, that you would use is yeah. 
you know, people that are getting their hands on it before it actually goes to print or it goes off to the, the editor themselves. So that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, and I, I, there's a woman named, there's a woman named Tish Harrison Warren. She wrote a book called liturgy of the ordinary. She's from our city. She spoke at a conference where my wife and I happened to be at. It's called Jubilee this past year. Hmm. And we were recruiting for my wife's the organization my wife works for and the organization that gives us health care. And so happy to go help recruit. And I love the organization. And uh, we, anyways, Tish was doing a, a workshop on writing and her process of writing. And, and it, so I just kind of snuck in and sat in there. And she talked about writing in community. And that, that really hit me. And, um, so even before I had the professional editors on it, um, that the, the publisher themselves had and were paying to work on my book, I had friends who were reading early manuscripts who were critical and who didn't care about my self-esteem. So who who knew that what what stunk and needed to tell me and yep. so we could fix it and make it better. And so they were more committed to a great book than to my uh, my feelings. Which is, which is exactly what you need. I mean, you don't yeah. want... I mean, not that it's it's not bad getting the pats on the back from mom or you know aunt or dad or whomever. Uh, yeah. Although convincing my dad to read my my own books is a bit of a, a bit of a stretch, but I know yeah. I, I know at least my mom would probably read it. But but the, but, but I you, mean, you kind of feel like yeah. you kind of feel like at times like I don't know like the early years of American Idol when people would go on and like my mom thinks I'm awesome. Like that's how you kind of feel yeah. as a writer at first. You just feel like are just my friends and do they just are they just telling me I'm good, but I'm not actually writing anything that anybody should read. Yeah. And it's just hard to know until you send it out to people to endorse that you mm -hmm. don't know and have no investment in it. Yeah. They're like, yeah, it seems pretty good. I like this. Well, I think so. it's, it, you also, it's a, it's a unique dynamic when you have really close friends who maybe have known you a long time and you suddenly present this with, to them and they think, Oh, do I really think Austin has like, you know, the ability to do this or perhaps, I mean, in my case, I've been pretty fortunate to to meet some people along my journey as a writer that didn't know me prior, like when I was writing just total garbage back in like college or right out of college. And so they're kind of seeing this stuff for the first time and going, oh, this is really good. You know, despite all the kind of the mishaps and things that I had years ago that I just yeah. look back and go, oh, it's very cringeworthy yeah. uh, in, in some way. So. I mean, that's how I feel. Writing is newer to me, but that's how I feel about speaking. And like when I look at early sermons, even I know when I look at my sermons now, I feel that way 10 years. But like when I look at sermons from six years ago, you're like, mm -hmm. da, <laughs> like, I can't believe they left. I can't believe that thing was up there. And I put that kind of stuff out there. Right. So right. Well, at the time, you don't realize it. Yeah. And you're still learning. I mean, you're going to develop a mm -hmm. style of speaking as well as as much mm -hmm. as you develop a style in writing. And you were, yeah. we were kind of talking about that, how the two kind of mesh intertwine they interweave with one another and they kind of affect one another so mm -hmm. so that'll be an ongoing process for you so speaking of which an ongoing process uh beyond this book i know this book is just coming out soon but as far as beyond it i mean like what are your plans and like what are you what are you thinking to do uh beyond a restless age uh, i don't know yet there are <laughs> there are pastors i won't put it that way that's just gonna sound pharisaical there, there are those. Who I knew where you were feel, going, but it's okay. I yeah, mean, there, there are those who feel the need to put a book out all the time and to turn every sermon series into a book. Mm. Um, try to stop me from doing that, Josh, if you see me doing that, because okay. I think I could be like, oh, I should turn this into a book. But not everything you preach or teach needs to be a book. There's good chances there's already something better out there or something that somebody's written on a very similar subject. And there's just a lot of books on the same subject coming out, out right now. And um, I think. I, have, I know that there are things that I've been thinking about that I'm mulling over, but 
Mm-hmm. We'll see. We'll see when I actually start writing those down again. I think I want to start shifting into more articles and essays for a little while, and then mm-hmm. um, begin to kind of experiment some ideas in essay form, and then see which of those ideas might might make sense in a in a longer uh, thing like a book. Mm-hmm. So I have a feeling I'll write another book. I like it. I like the process. It's fun. Um, I'm a, I just enjoy writing. Mm-hmm. But um, that's where I'm at right now. So I'm waiting. So no, there are we, things that intrigue think, me. What, what's that? There are things that intrigue me, but I'm I'm waiting to kind of I'm, I'm working them in the background. I'm paying attention and saving a lot of articles in Evernote and thoughts there. You know, Dave, you and me are like kindred spirits. I use Evernote yeah. and Google Drive back and forth all the time. So those are you can do a lot with those two things. Oh, you absolutely can. And it just yeah. So we'll we can go down that another road or another time. I mean. Um, but as far as, uh, you know, we kind of mentioned the launch team that you have and kind of writing in community. And this, this might be the, the last point of it as far as the book is concerned. But yeah. in the age of social media and garnering attention for one's book and, you know, having a publisher behind you is one thing. But as far as having like a social media presence, I mean, how important is that for, say, a new writer? I guess for any writer, really, but for anyone who's trying to build a platform, I mean... Uh, yeah, I'd say I don't know um, because my <laughs> platform is not huge. I have like 200 Instagram followers and I have like uh, somewhere between 500 and 600 Twitter followers. Mm-hmm. And a bunch of those are like middle-aged moms because one time Beth Moore liked an, an essay that I had written and then she started, I'm, she started following me, which by the way, completely like freaks you out if like a famous person follows you on Twitter you're constantly afraid of saying something stupid all of a sudden Um, but after she likes some of my tweets like a bunch of middle-aged women started following me which is fine I'm glad they're intrigued by what I'm saying Um, but my platform doesn't make a lot of sense Um, and so I'm sure I mean there are plenty of people who could tell you about like how why it's important and what it does and there's some people who are dedicated completely to building up their social media platforms and the difficulty is I know a lot of publishers um, even GCD, you know, they asked, you know, what are your followers? What are your current platforms? And, you know, I didn't have a ton. And that's, it's hard. It's like, how do you build a platform until you've got a thing to say? And then, mm-hmm. and, and if you don't get a chance to say the thing you want to say, how are you ever going to gain an audience? And so it's just, it's kind of like a, like a circle of, of stuff. And it's easy to lose your soul, I think, yeah. in all of it. <laughs> it kind of um, is. I mean, yeah. So that's it, what it, I always talk to. Whenever he's like, how's the book coming? I'm like, just try not to lose my soul. Yeah. <laughs> That's a that's a great way of putting it, Austin. Just don't lose your soul in the midst of it, man. Just just my friend my friend Dave Ripper said that to me and he wrote a book on um called The Fellowship of the Suffering and he just talked to me. He's like, just don't don't lose your soul in the process. And it can be easy to easy to obsess over building a platform. And mm-hmm. I, I like to be liked. I like when people like me. I know that about myself. And so I have to be careful mm-hmm. with that. And it's not a problem if people like me or like something that I say, but I know that I can eat it up, I can obsess mm-hmm. over it, which means if somebody doesn't like me. I can like I can pretend like I don't care, but I do. Yeah. Um, and so, the original question was about social media. I don't know. I can't give a good answer to that. But what I would say, I'll say about the launch team, mm-hmm. is is I do know that the only way that a lot of people hear about your book is through somebody in their network that shares about it. Mm-hmm. A lot of times today, there's some incredible independent bookstores around. Um, that you can visit and go learn about books that way. And there, like, there's a great independent bookstore that I visit locally that I learn about books just by walking in. Yeah. But for the most part, the way you're going to learn about books is either by an Amazon algorithm uh, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> deciding that you should be interested in this book or by a friend or probably multiple friends suggesting a book to you either in person or on social media. 
And so I tried to build a launch team of about 100 people from as many different networks as I could. So like, who are some friends I know living on the West Coast? Mm. Who are some friends I know that are Anglicans? Who are some friends I know that are that are Baptists? Who are some friends? And so different kind of networks and circles and just ask them, hey, could you join my launch team? And really what that meant was, I'll send you a PDF of my book. It's not the final version. There will still be some errors. And I'll send you basically a weekly email for the five to six weeks leading up to the launch. Mm-hmm. And then at the launch, if you can leave a review on Amazon, and then the week before, which is the week we're in right now, when we're recording this, mm-hmm. leaving reviews on Goodreads. I don't care. They could be two-star reviews. Just leave something. Let the world know. Like, yeah. Please don't. Pl- yeah. Review, just please Pl- give me the grace. Yeah. But um, you know, be honest and let people know what you think. But those kinds of reviews help it get noticed. But then on launch day, which is March 19th for me, um, sharing about it on social media. And I'm just really encouraging people to do it creatively. So I have a lot of friends who are writing reviews for co- their college magazines. Mm-hmm. I have friends who invited me to speak um, at their church or at their um, their college ministry or their campus, whatever they do. Mm-hmm. And and so, and then even, you know, JJ contacting you, that was, he's on my launch team. And so he read it and he said, oh, you should talk to my brother. And so he's he's gotten it out in his own creative way. He's leveraged yeah. his network. And so, it's just an amazing to see when people to watch when people take ownership even of your own of my book and so mm-hmm. this has become a team's a team's project and i could not get it in front of the eyes of people that they can and right. so they have credibility with people that i will never have credibility people will see my name and it means nothing but mm-hmm. jj suggest will suggest it to somebody and now it suddenly has credibility yep. and so that's kind of what i want people to do and ideally if only if it's a good book if it's a bad book don't tell people about it. I don't want you to lose your credibility. Mm-hmm. But if it's a good book, by all means, tell people you know who you think you need, need to read it. That's really good. And I think to, to anyone who's listening or watching this, uh, and you might think to yourself, oh man, Austin's got this kick butt launch team and he's got this you know massive network. Uh, we talked about you know just working in a community and being in a creative community. Really just start there. I mean, if you're someone who's just kind of sitting there going, I don't really know too many people like in my immediate circle that might yeah. be able to to build into this thing. Don't let that be too daunting uh, would be my advice because I think just like Austin, you have to start somewhere. You have to start yeah. somewhere and then start seeing like, well, what are my resources? You know, figuring out who are the people that I can talk to that I can connect with who would trust me, who consider me credible. And you mm-hmm. just kind of build it from there. And you don't, I mean, there's a, uh, Malcolm Gladwell has a book called Tipping Point, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, I don't know if you're familiar with or not. I think I'm, I no, I haven't read it. So yeah. I think I, I've heard about the concept, but I haven't read it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's basically that you know everyone's in terms of an idea or a business plan. Uh, there's like the one person who's like the linchpin to you reaching a massive amount of people. You know, mm-hmm. so like if if you like again Beth Moore, there you go, a great yeah. great example. Yeah, she likes something of yours, and all of a sudden there were people that knew about you that had never known you before. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's always that 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 uh, I don't want to say it's a chance because I, I don't like using that word too much, but there's the uh, the mathematics are with you as far as reaching out to many people and trying to increase your network and just kind of putting yourself mm-hmm. out there really to you yeah. know, to see who can you know would be willing to support you in this and getting in community so so that's all yeah. that's all really good yeah start with who you know my wife and I we on a, on a road trip we drive to Illinois to see her family a couple times a year and mm-hmm. we just started listing out people we knew from different networks and we said who do we know that could that you know we could ask to consider it's not an easy ask to ask people to read a book. And, um, 
Because what yeah, does it I mean? Think, oh, this is nice. You know. <laughs> yeah, especially when it's a PDF. So honestly, you know, I know there are people on my launch team that really wanted to get to the book but didn't, and they'll probably read it when it comes out in print, and that's fine. Yeah. I get it. Yeah, that's that's totally good, man. Uh, I had one final question for you because I don't want to take up yeah. too much of your time because I know uh, you and I are both dads and, you know, we have little ones that, you know, are sleeping and everything. And so you might be tired. But this is late at night. So, <laughs> so yeah. Um, so we had kind of, you know, we're getting back to Augustine himself. And this was actually something you had kind of brought up when we were talking offline about how Augustine was really shaped by a lot of the people around him, you know, the testimonies mm-hmm. that were around him and their stories and how they kind of reached him, you know, uh, in a very inward way, you know, him kind of absorbing mm-hmm. these, uh, yeah. you know, cause we all kind of look at individual stories and testimonies and these, we really do absorb these. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just as a, as a fellow, you know, brother in Christ, I mean, that's a, that's a huge thing, you know, hearing someone's testimony. You know, mm-hmm. and just seeing how their life has changed. Uh, how do you, you know, kind of view that power in storytelling? I mean, even though you've written something that's nonfiction, technically, you're still yeah. kind of telling a story in yeah. a restless age. I mean, you're really kind of, you're, you're bringing it through in the lens of, well, I'm still telling a story to my reader, mm-hmm. right? I mean, so. Yeah, I, I'd start with a, a quote, I actually have it in the intro to the book um, by C.S. Lewis. And it's from an essay that I think is called sometimes fairy stories may say best what needs said or something like that. Hmm. And the quote basically says, there's a famous phrase from it. He says, stories have a way in the way he, the phrase he says, has, have a way of stealing past watchful dragons. <laughs> and what he's trying to say is that, that you can try to argue with somebody about something, but there's, we have these watchful dragons in our minds that are like, no, I'm not going to be fooled by this. I'm not going to be fooled. I'm not going to be fooled. But a story has a way of entering our brains through like a unlocked back door. It like finds a way around the dragons and enters into us and grabs our imaginations. And, and before we even realize that something snuck in mm. and has already like, you know, um, made its way into us before we even realized it. And so, which is intriguing because when you look at Augustine's story, so Augustine's is a kind of a classic grew up with a, you know, a, a conservative religious mother, um, walked away from the faith and was spent his 20s searching. And there were two major instances, at least two, there might be more, there were at least two major instances in his life where somebody told him a story and it captured his imagination. One was a time where a man named um, Simplicianus told him, I don't, or maybe, it might be Simplicianus, I don't really know how to say his name, told him the story of another guy named Victorinus who was a, an unbeliever but who became a Christian um, and when, when Augustine finished hearing this story of this man's conversion, he ends saying, I was on fire for emulation. I wanted to, mm-hmm. I wanted his story to be my story. Oh, and wow. so, so, you know, he went to this guy, some, we'll call him Simplicanus. I don't know what his name, how to say his name <laughs> said, you know, he probably went to him looking for answers, but what he, what he got instead was a story and it worked its way into him. And then at another point where he was struggling to make sense of the possibility of a life of singleness, which is something he was considering mm-hmm. at the time. Somebody else named um, Ponticianus told him a story about um, uh, another guy, or told him a story about St. Anthony. And when he told him this story, it, it said that it put him in front of his own face and he had to think about his life mm-hmm. and, and it really set him on fire. And so it's stories in Augustine's life that really changed his story. And what's intriguing now is that Augustine wrote his own story at the, you know, the fourth century. And it, that story has stuck around now for 1500 years and it has shaped. And the reason is because 
anytime anybody encounters that story, it continues to resonate. Mm-hmm. And so stories shaped Augustine and Augustine stories continue to shape um, many people's stories today, which is really what I try to do with the Restless Age is I try to try to introduce people to Augustine's story. And my hope is that they might have the same experience with his story that he had with the stories that he heard from other people. That's really good. Mm, that's good stuff. Real deep, real yeah. rich. I like that, Austin. Hey, try my best. I try my best. <laughs> well, good stuff, man. Hey, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, you know, just kind of deep diving with you a little bit and getting to know you and just kind of hearing this launch that's coming up for Restless Age. I think you've you definitely have, uh, even though this is your first book, you've you've kind of checked off, I think, all the things that one should be doing if they're going to be doing a launch. So I just want to congratulate you on that, on the book, as well as just really being diligent, man, uh, hey. through this, through this first, uh, through, uh, first publication that you got coming up. So thanks a lot, Josh. That means a lot. Yeah, man, absolutely. Uh, so on that note, where can we find you? I mean, we kind of talked about Twitter, but, uh, mm-hmm. where is everyone going to be able to find this book, uh, and yeah. find you ultimately actually, um, best place to order the book from an independent bookstore um, call your independent bookstore and let them know about the book. And if they don't have it, they'll probably order it for you. Mm. Um, but there's one independent bookstore that I love that he will send books anywhere. His name is Byron Borger and Mm. he has a bookstore called hearts and minds. And I know for a fact, he just pre-ordered a bunch of my books bulk order and he'll be able to give them at a discount, Mm. um, to people. And so I encourage you to search hearts and minds and I tend to order a lot of my books from him. And, um, sometimes you pay a little bit more, but you get to, you get to have a real relationship with the bookstore owner. Mm. And so that's where I would start. Um, and it's with hearts and minds, but also it'll be available through Amazon and classic channels like that. Nice. Very good stuff. Well, you know, best of luck to you, sir, on your launch day. I'm sure it'll be awesome. Quit looking for yeah. errors. Don't look for any more. <laughs> yeah, Just... I'm not looking at it. I don't think I'll read it again. So. <laughs> no, unless, unless, unless there's a great fan who wants you to you know, read a yeah. chapter or something at a campus yeah. or something, right? Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> so thanks again, Austin. Really appreciate yeah. it, man. Thanks a lot, Josh. Hey, thanks for sticking around here till the end on The Writer's Lens. Appreciate all the support. Be sure to like, share, subscribe, and go check out Austin's new book, A Restless Age, How St. Augustine... Uh, can help you make sense of your 20s. It's available on Amazon and soon to be on other channels as well. So a real good thinker, that Austin uh, character, and I hope he has some more books in him uh, in future installments. So again, thanks for checking out The Writer's Lens. This is Josh J.C. Alfelto, and I'll catch up with you guys again soon.